Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. Has China beaten America at the globalization game? Let's get to the bottom line. If you want to understand how the world really works, about war and peace, about nations rising and falling, one fundamental place to start is oil and energy. As things stand now and for the foreseeable future, the oil and gas industry remains whoppingly vital to any country's businesses, its factories, its transport sector, its national defense. Yes, renewables are coming online. And yes, Tesla is going to be big. But in global terms, the quest for gas and oil will dominate the ambitions of the world's great powers. My guest today is considered to be an unrivaled oracle on the pulse of energy around the world. He's got a lot to say on the tensions brewing between America and China and Russia and the messy rivalries in the Middle East. Daniel Jurgen is a Pulitzer Prize winning author who's been writing about the intersection of energy, economics and history for decades. He is the vice chairman of IHS Market, an information company based in the UK and the USA. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his groundbreaking work, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power. And his latest book is The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Dan Jurgen, thanks for joining us today. When you, in your book, get into this question of what is driving the ambitions of big powers, you sort of tell the story, I mean, you're an incredible storyteller. You tell you know, the story of big geopolitics through people, but you focus on China, you focus on Russia and the United States, and what I just called the messy Middle East. Are these the primary drivers of power as you see it in the future of oil and energy and power uh, in the coming decades? Absolutely. And uh, not only are they the drivers, but the changes are so dramatic. Uh, Steve, my very first book was on the origins of the Cold War, and I never expected to write a new book, perhaps about the origins of Cold Wars. But certainly what's happening with China uh, and the United States uh, means that this is going to be the biggest geopolitical issue uh, for the next few decades. I think what's happened is that over the last five years has been a radical change in the in the, in the whole attitude between the two countries. And, you know, if you went back five years ago and you went back to presidents as far back as Reagan, they talked about engagement, constructive relationship, working with a changing China. You don't hear that anymore, Steve. As, as you know, there are very few things that unite Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C. But one thing that does is this notion that China is a strategic rival, a great power, uh, this great power competition here, competitor. This is a very different language, and the same thing comes from the Chinese. And, you know, you're asking the question, is it just inevitable that this happened? Uh, or is it the nature of the political systems that it's happened? But it's certainly uh, that sense of uh, being uh, kind of opposed to each other is rising. And it, it's on the economic front. Trade used to be the thing that tied them together because we're so interdependent, which is very different than the Cold War days with the Soviet Union. But even that has become very contentious. And so kind of solving this problem in a, in a way that doesn't get us into conflict of some kind is going to be a huge challenge of statecraft. Do you think Joe Biden, because of his knowledge and experience, can take us in a different direction? Do, do, can it matter? Or do you think the forces of oil, of energy, of competition for acolytes out in the rest of the world are so overwhelming that a, that a, that a leader can't change things? Uh, I think Biden is a, is a stabilizer and will look to stabilize. But a lot of things have happened in the relationship. The South China Sea that I write about, Hong Kong, uh, the whole battle over technology, uh, the sense that uh, 
that there are risk in the economic relationship with, with, uh, with China. So you have both Republicans on one side and Democrats who don't like trade on the other side. So I, I don't think there's going back to where we were when Barack Obama was there or when Bill Clinton brought China into the rule-based system of the World Trade Organization way back in 2001. I don't think there's going back to that, but certainly Biden will try and stabilize it. And the one area that they'll probably try and work with China will be on climate. But I think most of the other issues are gonna be pretty contentious. Now you talk about the century of humiliation with China and, and that is a driver of its psyche and what its choices are. But you also talk about humiliation in the Middle East, which is messy, messy and rivalries and you know some of them real, some of them petty. And I, I guess my question is, why has the Middle East turned out so differently than China with having so much, so you know, such a huge resource base? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I hadn't quite seen that connection to that. That theme of humiliation is a big theme in Middle East politics too. Uh, in the China sense, there was a sense that we were once great, now we're not. I have this picture in the book of uh, Xi Jinping after he becomes party secretary. First thing he does is he takes his Politburo over to a museum to stand in front of an exhibit called the Century of Humiliation and saying, this is the past, we're now going forward from here. So he's a very strong Chinese nationalist. I think China's one country, uh, the Middle East, uh, there's so many different currents and their people, you know, a lot of it has been trying to overturn a map that was laid down during and after the First World War, uh, Sykes-Picot and what followed from that. Uh, but so you have the people who just, you know, ISIS who just want to go back to a different, uh, different world, back to the seventh century. And then you have the oil exporting countries, some of them trying to adapt to a different kind of era in terms of what's ahead. And then you have the overarching issue of the competition. And back to your power competition between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey for predominance in the region. You know, one of the things that struck me is the scale of Chinese engagement in the world, the Belt and Road Initiative, your comparison of it to, you know, seven times greater than the Marshall Plan where America bailed out Europe. And of course, the nations it bailed out, it was sort of an expectation that those nations were going to play kind of the global game our way. Uh, when you look at what China is doing in the world and the scale of it, I, I think the message comes in very clear that America is sort of in trouble when it comes to influence in the world. Am I wrong? I think that's right. I think that we've lost some of it and people are not very confident about where the U.S. is going, what it wants. And, uh, you know, one of the great strengths the U.S. has had is its alliance system. China doesn't have an alliance system. Well, that system is pretty frayed right now. Uh, and the Belt and Road is really an assertion of Chinese saying the Middle Kingdom will be more of a middle of the world economy. Now, I think they've had a scale of back with COVID. Uh, they built a question about debt, but it's very ambitious, as you say, $1.4 trillion. And the Belt and Road, I have this map. It was actually hard to, it was hard to put the map together because it has so many different elements. It's South Asia, it's the Middle East, it's Africa, it's Europe. And I have an exchange in the book in which President Panama says to uh, the president of China, can we be part of Belt and Road too? And President China, Xi, President Xi says, sure, this is about connectivity. So it is about economics, but it's also inevitably about, uh, uh, about political uh, influence. And, and let me, and if I can add one other thing about that, it's very interesting 
whether I'm in Asia, you know, when we could travel or talking to people like over Zoom, when it's in Asia, uh, uh, in the Middle East, in Latin America, you hear the same thing now. Don't make us choose. We don't want to have to choose between the US with whom we have a strategic relationship and an economic relationship and China, which is the most important market for our goods. And that's a, you know, that's a, another aspect of this that people haven't looked at much, but really struck me as I was finishing the book, the number of voices you hear saying that and other countries who are worried about a standoff between the United States and China. I remember when Barack Obama came in, the Saudis came to me and were so upset about the Barack Obama campaign saying, you know, that that energy independence was a goal of an America and it was within reach. Uh, and they said that would be a terrible thing for us in the Middle East. And you sort of write that it was a terrible thing for them, that their relevance well, exactly. declined well, so because of Barack Obama. It started with Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, uh, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush and Barack Obama. They all said energy independence and it all seemed ridiculous. And I think even in 2008, when Barack Obama came in, it did not seem very likely because people did not really, that was, 2008 was a year that people began to think you could apply shale gas technology to oil. It turned out to be an incredibly disruptive technology, transformed the market. And instead of the US importing 60% of its oil and the vulnerability or the sense of insecurity that goes with it, you now have the, the big three, it's the United States, Russia and Saudi Arabia, who sit astride the world oil market, and the U.S. is the number one producer of oil and gas in the world. Twelve years ago, unthinkable. What would have happened twelve years ago if the Iranians, even with a small attack, attacked a UAE ship or attacked Saudi uh, oil production facilities, or if the United States had uh, assassinated? you know, uh, an Iranian IRGC Al-Quds commander. What would have happened to the price of oil? Tell that story. Uh, there would have been, if any of those things had happened, there would have been panic in the market. The price of oil would have shot up. It would have been, you know, dominated the front page. What's going to happen? What does it mean? Gas lines, disruption in the United States, disruption in all around the world, the Middle East of flames. But we had a case study uh, a little over a year ago where Iranian missiles went into the most important hardware in the world oil industry, which is Abcake facility in Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Aramco was able to fix it fast, but the other side of it was also that the markets kind of, if it panicked, it panicked for 24, 48 hours because there's this other big thing there called shale and Canadian oil and other things. The market is much more diversified. So there's an element of, uh, of energy security that in the scenario you described, uh, Steve, would not have existed uh, 12 years ago. So it is a big change. And therefore, since we have it, kind of people forget it, at least in this country, in the US, forget about it and ignore it and take it for granted. When it comes to this question of the, you know, the supply of oil and whatnot, you know, and, and the, the Paris Climate Accord and environmentalism, how do these swim together? It's, it's not an a easy picture. What we've seen in the last few months is really since September is you had the EU saying we're going to be net zero carbon by 2030. Now you have Japan, you have South Korea that said it, you have Britain that said it, you have Canada that said it, and you've had Joe Biden that said it. So that tells you directionally where we're going. And if you look at the growth of renewables, including uh, renewable solar and, uh, and wind, they're going to grow. They're, that's where a big part of the investment 
in new uh, power facilities will go. But I was just looking at the numbers for uh, Asia. 58% of the power plants under construction in Asia today are coal and natural gas. So directionally, we know where the world's going to go. We have a technology deficit to get there, uh, and that's going to take money and time to do that. And I think carbon capture, as it's called, is going to be part of the picture because it does, you know, yet an $87 trillion economy in 2019 that runs 80% on oil, gas, and coal. You can't, I don't think you could just transform it. You can change the balance and we'll have a more mixed system and we'll be more efficient in how we use energy. But we're still missing a lot of technologies we need uh, to fully address this, including carbon capture. So what about Green New Deal and Representative Ocasio-Cortez and a lot of people, I, I imagine we have some of, of, of her fans watching this show today. Do they have a place in the new map or are they on the fringes? Well, well no, I think they, they will be a very important voice and uh, pressure group. You can see as uh, the Biden administration is, is uh, being put together almost every day. The front page seems to have a story about progressives or environmentalists or other groups complaining that they're not getting enough positions in the Biden administration. So uh, there will be, uh, there'll be a continual struggle. And I think there's a, a lot of momentum to this. And, uh, you know, you see companies adopting net zero carbon targets too. It's just, it's easy. You can say the what, what's missing is the how. Dan, I want to get uh, back into another dimension of the new map, and that is the North Pole, which as, as part of global warming has opened up a lot of pathways and opportunities for Russia. It's opened a lot of new supply opportunities for China and creates ways to circumvent that you know complicated arena of the South China Sea. But best I can tell, the Americans have been you know on the sidelines. What's going on in terms of America, China, and Russia, and what's going on in the, in the warming North Pole? I think the U.S. has been ambivalent about developing resources in that region. It's been contentious in the United States. Russia is not uh, ambivalent about it. They've gone fully ahead to develop liquefied natural gas, LNG resources there that are going to make them one of the big LNG suppliers in the world. And they see this not only from an economic point of view, but from a strategic point of view. Great photograph in the book of this Russian scientist who planted this titanium flag at 15,000 feet under the sea uh, 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 to claim the space for uh, Russia. Russia sees it as, a, as their strategic territory. And China is not going to be left out of the act because it sees it, as you say, as an alternative to the South China Sea. And uh, one of the amusing things in the new map is that the Chinese uh, now talk about a polar silk road and say that they're basically an Arctic power too. And they want to play because they send a lot of stuff from uh, Asia to Europe, and this is quicker and faster, and they don't want to be left out. So, uh, and Russia, of course, has that very long coastline. The other country that has a very long coastline there is Canada. And the Canadian prime, uh, foreign minister, when the Russians planted this flag, said, that's so 19th century, uh, how can you do it? But the Russians went ahead and did it, and for them, it's 21st century. Well, I think one of the other interesting implications, because I know many people in the oil and energy market, you know, wait for every word you say in terms of what's going to lay out in the future. But one of the really interesting things is because of COVID, it may diminish the resources for investment 
in new coalitions around green jobs. You know, Ernie Moniz, the former Secretary of Energy, is interested in an energy jobs coalition uh, around green energy uh, opportunities. And, and what I found interesting is you said oil could very much be the scarce needed item, even though we're talking about in the near term because of the lack of this investment. Am I basically getting that right? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I think that uh, investment has really left the sector. You know, you've had two price collapses in, in, since 2014. You haven't had returns to investors, and so they've gone elsewhere. So there is the question of access to capital. Plus, uh, some investors are reluctant to invest in the sector anyway. But we have to ask, where would the jobs be? Remember, 70% of the world's solar panels are made in China, and another 10% by Chinese companies elsewhere. So, you know, certainly putting solar panels on people's roofs or jobs and so forth. But I think what we really need and what I emphasize, and this is a study that we did with uh, Ernie Moniz for this Breakthrough Energy Coalition, we, we need new technologies that we don't really have. The technologies don't come overnight. You know, the first lithium-ion battery Teslas appeared commercially in 2008. Lithium-ion battery was invented in an Exxon laboratory in 1976 when the world was going to run out of oil. Look how long it took to get there. Wind and solar are, are half-century-old industries, modern wind and solar. It's only in the last 10 years they've become competitive. And by the way, they've become very competitive. Talk about a shale revolution. There's been a solar revolution as well. You leave Africa out of your map for the most part. Um, a lot of lithium, perhaps, in Africa. Does Africa have a chance to leapfrog uh, onto the Dan Jurgen next map uh, because of you know the, the the craze for lithium that we may see uh, as more Tesla-like uh, batteries come on? Well, and cobalt is the Democratic Republic of Congo is the cobalt source. I do have the, uh, in the book, the Nigerian energy minister saying it's fine for the Netherlands and uh, Germany to say they're going to do this in energy, but we have tens and tens of hundreds of millions of poor people. We need commercial natural gas and the same thing. I use India in a way as the, as the emblematic story to talk about the developing world, but you do point to something that's very interesting, uh, Steve, which is the ambitions around net zero carbon involves so much building of things that aren't there now. The wind may be free, the sun may be free, but you need a lot of minerals, you need a lot of mining. Instead of big oil, you'll have big shovels. And that means you're gonna have new supply chains and kind of what you're pointing to, where are those supply chains, how are they gonna work? And you know, China has moved very effectively to have a dominant, it dominates the lithium ion uh, battery supply chain today. So that gets us back to where we started talking about uh, U.S.-China clash, and you know we've seen the battle over Huawei, the, the the telecommunications company. We've seen the battle over TikTok. You know, our supply chains for green energy also going to be subject to this. We don't know, but I'd say keep your eye on it. You know, uh, your your book is is just filled with great stories of people, and I want uh, my viewers. Uh, to know that it's a it's a wonderful book, not just about oil and energy in a very bland sense. It's enriched by by human stories, tinkerers, obsessive compulsive types. But when you go into a country like Saudi Arabia, you talk about how a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit has not taken place because there's been sort of a caretaker or a nanny state, you know, in this. And I'm just interested in whether you think a place like Saudi Arabia 
will eventually be compelled by circumstances you know, to move in a new and different direction. And where some of those stories, when you were to write an update of this book, you may see, you know, a Saudi entrepreneur there uh, uh, match some of the, you know, other wonderful stories that you share in your book. I think uh, it's very challenging when you have lived off, been an oil exporter, <clears throat> a natural resource exporter, it tends to crowd out the rest of the economy. And so they have Vision 2030, which is trying to reform economy shifted to you know be less dependent upon oil it's pretty hard to do it because it's not just the, the you know just the investment in the ground it's the value system it's rule of law it's it's what people believe is it okay to fail i mean one of the things about american society it's okay to fail and then start again uh and a lot of societies that's not possible it also turns out that if you really want to get away from oil diversify away from oil it helps to have a lot of oil revenues to do that and it hasn't, that hasn't been very possible in the last uh, six years. So I think it's challenging. You've seen some of the countries in the, in the Gulf area, Abu Dhabi, for instance, that have been able to do that, but it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge and it really takes a commitment. It takes an educational system that turns out people. Uh, so it's not just, uh, you know, you don't just sort of say, we're gonna do it and make it happen. Uh, uh, but I think that if you look at the countries in the Gulf region, they're looking, they're saying we have to do it because oil may still be a dominant commodity, but it's going to be less dominant and less urgent in the future. And at the same time, 70% of our population is under the age of 30 and they need jobs. So you better diversify your economy. It's just, it turns out it's hard. You know, let me just ask finally, Dan, when I was reading your book, I was asking myself, what other kinds of major trends are happening in the world that could also develop their own maps and how would they overlie on the one that you described? And I was thinking about really the rapid rise of populist nationalism, looking at uh, religion and proselytizing and the kind of competition of religions uh, globally as others. Did, have you thought at all about these other isms uh, and how they either run into your view uh, of, of the new map or are uh, irrelevant? Well, I think that one, I didn't dwell upon it, or maybe, maybe a couple of them. One is the rise of the strong man who has a system that on paper is democratic, but is not democratic. I think that's one feature. The other goes back to a book I did called Commanding Heights, which is, uh, you know, the embrace of an open global economy market system and the movement away from that and the distrust of that. And that ties into exactly that populism that you're talking about, that somehow elites are, are, are managing things. So I think that's, that's, that's there. And you always, I mean, you think of all the changes that happened over the last 10 years, there'll be changes ahead, but I've tried to bring them together in the new map. And at the same time, as you say, with a lot of stories, a lot of people, and I'm very proud of the pictures. I think this is the only book on energy ever written that has a photograph of the actor Jackie Chan in it. But people have to look at the book to figure that one out. But it makes sense. It ties into what we've been talking about. Exactly, exactly. Well, Dan Jurgen, uh, author of The New Map, uh, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your candid thoughts with us today. And I really recommend it to people. It's an incredible. It does, in fact, help you organize you know, what other what otherwise looks like chaos out there. 
Um, and I think it also creates some very sobering views on those people who do want to get uh, to a more sustainable energy climate, what the forces are that they've got to contend with um, that you lay out in a very sober way. So Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Steve. It's great to be on with you. I appreciate it. So what's the bottom line? Deng Xiaoping, one of China's great leaders, once predicted the world will soon be one planet with two systems, and he might just be right. China's building its way to a global Marshall Plan that dwarfs what the United States did for Europe after World War II. And the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, those are ties that bind. And let's face it, looking at the latest election results that elected Joe Biden but exposed a deeply divided USA, we see lots of Americans believe they fought the Cold War, but China won. And they also believe that the world, like Donald Trump kept saying, is ripping America off. There's an ambivalence about global engagement today, so we shouldn't be surprised that China's version of globalization, we can call it Globalization 2.0, could be the story of this century. And that's the bottom line.